0: This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. today with uh, Dr. John Kuhn. Dr. Kuhn, welcome.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you, Bill.
0: Uh, who is our uh, expert on all things naval here at uh, DMH. And so we're going to talk today about one of, uh, one of the more interesting parts of World War II, uh, which is the war in the Pacific. And specifically, we're going to focus on kind of the strategic level of that war. Um, and so we're going to start by talking about some of the kind of deep origins of it. And uh, I think a good year to start with it is 1905. Because in 1905 we have kind of the emergence of the um, American-Japanese rivalry. We start to have the um, we start to have the development of of the power system that will lead us into World War II. Um, so let's start there, Doctor Kuhn. Why? What happens in 1905, and why is that important for the future, particularly of the American-Japanese War? Well,
1: 1905 is a convenient milestone. It's probably you could pick any number of other milestones, but you know, like, let's, get, let's get to the geography here first. Uh, part of the problem with talking about conflict in the Pacific is that what do we mean by it? Um, for Americans, the Pacific means everywhere from the west coast of the United States to the Philippines. Uh, for the Soviet Union slash Russians, the Pacific means some, uh, something completely different uh, from, from uh, Kamchatka Peninsula uh, and then everywhere south. So they see the Pacific as sort of a southern sea sort of a deal. Uh, for the British they look at it in a much much bigger lens. For them it's what we refer to the region today. Uh, it's the Indo-Pacific. So for the Indian Ocean and the Pacific are one. They're not, they're, not, they're not two separate pieces. They're part of a much larger whole for the British Empire. And, and, and we've kind of come full circle today, and we're, we're back to Indo-PACOM today, in the Indo-Pacific Command for the U.S. Uh, Combatant Commander for that. Uh, for the Japanese, uh, it's the Southeast Asia area. Um, so they don't really think of it as the Pacific so much as they think of as, as the Southeast Asian area or the Southeast Asian Ocean region. Uh, similarly, that's the way the Chinese think about it, that's how they thought about it back then, and they think in terms of cardinal directions. There's, there's the North Sea, the Yellow Sea, uh, there's the East Sea, which we call the East China Sea, and then there's the South Sea, which, which some people call the South China Sea, and, and if you're in Vietnam you call it the Southeast Asian Sea. So, um, and These are all part of what we think of when conflict begins to occur in the 20th century in this broad expanse of water but between essentially uh, the, uh, the east coast of Africa and the west coast of the United States. So names for conflicts in the region have always been difficult because, you know, my own name for the conflict uh, that, I, that I have is uh, the Asia-Pacific War, 1937 to 1945. Now, that's not the only war going on in the region. Uh, and so 1905 is a convenient pick because this is when the first, first major uh, war occurs in the region between a nominally Western power, although calling Russia a Western power, I think is a mistake, um, and an Asian power, Japan. Um, uh, there had been a Pacific war earlier that everybody forgot about that occurred between a couple South American nations. Uh, uh, Peru and Chile and and a couple other South South American nations. So you have to be careful because if you get in with the Spanish-American historians, uh, particularly for South America, the continent of South America, and you say Pacific War, they're going to be thinking of of a war that occurred in the 19th century, not any other wars that occurred in the 20th century. So terminology can get confusing really, really quickly. Um, For our purposes, uh, 1905 is what uh, some people have called the Russo-Japanese War. And it itself was a sequel to an earlier war in the 1890s called the Sino-Japanese War, sometimes called the First Sino-Japanese War, although it's not even the First Sino-Japanese War because mm-hmm. the First Sino-Japanese War probably occurred back when uh, when Moses was being fished out of the waters of the Nile. So, <laughs> So for the modern period, the First Sino-Japanese War was Japan's Uh, The the world's introduction to the modernizing trends in Japan that gave birth to sort of a rejuvenated empire of Japan that was no longer just simply on the Japanese islands but had expanded beyond that. And it was the first Sino-Japanese war that caused Russia and Japan to come into conflict in 1905. At that point, Japan was considered a westernizing power. Um, and the concerns of all sort of the stakeholders of the imperialist system that ran the globe in that time frame, mm-hmm. uh, Japan was Japan was the good guy. Japan was fighting against expansionist Czarist imperialism, kind of like Ukraine is today. So,, um, so so that that conforms a convenient milestone because Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War had both land power, strategic components and naval strategic components. And Japan's dazzling and overwhelming victory over the Russian fleet in the Battle of the Japan Sea, which that's what it was called at the time. Later on, it became the Battle of Tsushima Strait, Uh, served as a convenient vehicle for both Japan and Russia to sign a peace treaty. Mm -hmm. Japan could use the, the victory as sea, we won, and Russia could use the victory as sea, there's no hope for us, we lost. So it sort of gave both of the nations an out, because to that point, the war was becoming endless in Manchuria. It was turning into a war that was just going to go on and on and on. So
0: what's the importance of the United States being involved in the Treaty of Portsmouth that ends that war, where you kind of have the real, the first, you know, military trans-Pacific interaction?
1: Well, yeah. So to do that, we have to go back to 1890. Uh, and two works come out in 1890 that, that, that are prophetic. The first is, is Frederick Jackson Turner's Frontier. Work frontier thesis work, which is that the, the Americans, uh, American history is shaped by, by this concept of the frontier that there's always a frontier to the west, and in 1890 that frontier no longer exists in the continental United States, and as other observers point out later, particularly Walter Millis, the United States, and and more recently William Brasted, who's who passed away recently, the new frontier is the Pacific. And so the United States expands into the Pacific. It had already been expanding there. So the United States' interest in the Pacific begins. Then uh, the Pacific War that I talked about earlier between the South American nations had been a key factor in sort of making the United States aware that it didn't have a navy to even enforce the Monroe Doctrine in our own things. So so this navalism begins, and one of the principal architects of American navalism is. Theodore Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And he becomes president by accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had been the, the assistant secretary of the Navy during the Spanish-American War, was one of the architects of the successful naval strategies. Successful enough is probably a better way to put them. He and Alfred Thayer Mahan and this War Strategy Board, put together by another guy who doesn't get very much credit, John D. Long, Secretary of the Navy. Um, and this navalism... Uh, delivers the United States a, a fairly large modern navy that catapults the United States into the second rank of naval powers. And so so Theodore Roosevelt brokers this peace between the Japanese and the Russians in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, of mm-hmm. all places. Normal uh, or is Maine? I always forget whether it's Maine or New Hampshire, but anyway, it's the other Portsmouth, the one that's in New England. And he invites the Russians and and the Japanese to Portsmouth, and serves as the honest broker. And it's 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 a brilliant performance, um, but it also sort of announces that the United States is going to be a broker of of security in the Pacific. The United States had already sort of adopted this policy with the Roosevelt Corollary corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. But the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine was really about the Western Hemisphere, not about the Eastern Hemisphere. But for Roosevelt, it was, because now it meant that that the United States is very involved in something called the open door in China. Mm -hmm. America's foreign policy in Asia is the open door in China. America has two enduring foreign policy principles when Roosevelt is president. And, and you could almost say they're the enduring American overseas foreign policy principles uh, for most of the 20th century. The open door, which means an open door in Turkey, an open door in Africa, an open door anywhere in the world. So the open door is not just in the Western Hemisphere. It's everywhere. And, that, and the open door is an economic policy. Your markets should allow American goods in with minimal or no tariffs. That's the American policy. It's an economic policy. The only way to enforce this is with a navy. Mm-hmm. And so, so Roosevelt, in sort of one leap with the diplomatic instrument of power, stakes out this American sort of suzerainty, sovereignty, or extraterritoriality, if we want to call it that, in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Well, John,
2: I want to pick on something you, you've been uh, hitting at a little bit. The Atlantic, the, the, the two oceans, at least as the USC, United States sees it, is kind of the Atlantic and the Pacific. There are others, but those are kind of the ones we pay attention to. So h- strategically, how is the Atlantic different than the Pacific? Like You're talking about the Pacific more as a frontier, which would mean that the Atlantic is more of a settled environment. So, so how, how do we view these two oceans?
1: Well, in 1905, it's not a settled environment. Okay. And and Americans are divided. Americans have always been divided. The Navy's divided. I mean, when I came into the Navy, you know, guys would stand up and go, I'm a Pacific Fleet sailor. And guys would stand up in front of me and go, I'm an Atlantic Fleet sailor. The Navy itself was divided, bipolar, if you will. You know, and some of us were lucky enough to be Pacific and Atlantic sailors. And, 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 and we made the claim that we're the ones who should run the Navy, not the, not the parochialists, as we called them. So, so the Atlantic in, in American uh, foreign policy in 1905 has become a very important uh, factor, uh, but it's not the most important factor in American foreign policy. But it's very, very important. So 1905 is a, an, another reason 1905 is a good year as a milestone as it serves as a point of departure for what's going on with the Empire of Great Britain and its Pacific strategy. And Great Britain actually, prior to the arrival of Sir Jackie Fisher as first sea lord under an economizing British liberal government, the British have already made the decision strategically to cede the Pacific, They've decided to remove their battleship squadron from Hong Kong, which is where it was based, um, and and cede the Pacific. And they do that by signing a treaty with Japan in 1902, the Anglo-Japanese Naval Treaty, which is a treaty of defense. If Japan or England are attacked by a combination of two or more European naval powers, this is code for France and Russia, mm-hmm. then they will come to each other's defense. Okay? Now, what happens is that Germany gets added to that. All right? so, so the British strategically see that Germany, Russia, and France could potentially gang up on the Japanese or gang up on the British. So they sign this. But it's also Great Britain's way of being able to pull its battleships back to Great Britain. And this occurs before Jackie Fisher becomes first sea lord. But by 1905, Jackie Fisher is first sea lord and he confirms this policy of pulling the British fleet back to protect the sea lines of communication into Great Britain from the empire from the greatest threat. And that threat is in Europe. And that threat has morphed from Russia and France into Germany, And so the United States looks at the Atlantic with a very British viewpoint. I would say the way the United States looks at the Atlantic is very much the way, and I'm talking, when I say the United States, I'm talking about the policy elites, like Teddy Roosevelt, and Alfred Thayer Mahan, and Brooks Adams, and and and, uh, and the other Adams family people that are all out there, you know, Henry Adams and, and all the various Adams, there's just a zillion of them and they're all part of the elites back in, back in the East Coast. And the way they look at the Atlantic is through the British lens and the German threat. Uh, this is a time when the United States is just beginning to employ modern strategic planning processes. Mm-hmm. And that modern strategic planning process gives Birth to a war plan to defend the United States and its security interests in support of the Monroe Doctrine. Mm-hmm. All right, and that doctrine states hey, we are not going to let further European imperial expansion in the Western Hemisphere. Well, in 1905, that war plan and actually the war plans existed for ten years because Mahan first works on it in 19 and 1894. Um, is war plan what becomes war plan black and so war plan so the focus of the united states war planning at the time is not the pacific even though we have stated interests in the pacific we have a pacific squadron based on the on the west coast in in san diego primarily uh, with a far eastern squadron of older dilapidated ships that had been based in chafu china uh, and and now is based in Manila, okay, in Manila Bay. Um, the uh, but the the larger share of American combat power is actually in the east. It's in the and it's focused on the Caribbean, where we see the Germans trying to seize bases and expand into the Western Hemisphere to create. Bases to attack British sea lines of communication. So this is a global strategic thing that we're talking about. The Atlantic affects the Pacific and the Pacific affects the Atlantic. So most Americans would be shocked to find out that the bulk of American strategy at the time was actually focused on the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So
2: with that said, with the British having conceded the uh, Pacific to the Japanese Japanese,
1: and the Americans and the French and with the the
2: Americans having focused their naval strategy on the Atlantic, who is the preeminent naval power
1: in the Pacific? There is none. Okay, with the Japanese defeat of the Russians who were laying claim to that uh, there, there's a power vacuum in the Pacific. You have essentially. The French, the Japanese, mm-hmm. and the Americans mm-hmm. as
0: sort of filling the vacuum. And a, a minor Dutch, if I'm remembering and correctly. And the Dutch
1: are there. The, and the Dutch are there. The Dutch have a significant presence. So, so John is right to point out that the Dutch still have this. In fact, why do the Netherlands have a navy? The Netherlands have a navy to protect their interest in the Dutch East Indies, yep. and the Dutch East Indies are this huge, resource-rich area. Well, we know it today is Indonesia. Correct? We call well—it's Indonesia, it's Malaysia, it's parts of Micronesia. Uh, it includes concessions in China, so it, so the Dutch have this presence there, but they're clearly inferior. Their navy is clearly inferior to the navy of France, to the navy of the United States and to the Navy of Japan. And it must
0: also be said to probably some of the South American navies, right?
1: True. The South American navies are of concern, particularly since the Germans are trying to develop relationships, particularly with navies of nations who have been humiliated recently. Mm -hmm. And that navy in South America, the navy that's probably of most concern, is the Navy of Chile. Mm -hmm. The Chileans are are anglophobes, and they're Germanophiles. So the, so the geopolitical construct here is very, very complicated, which is why the United States is most concerned about Germany and less concerned about Japan. In fact, I've my research has yielded that at the time, early on uh, in the general board, which is the American's Naval War Planning Organization inside the office of the Secretary of the Navy, it's not the chief of naval operations. It's not a service chief. It's, a, it's, about, it's about six or seven guys who write war plans headed by Admiral George Dewey, the hero of Manila Bay. And, and so they, they actually consider allying with Japan to kind of come to an agreement with Japan, uh, particularly since Britain had already done that. And so the anglophiles inside the United States Navy and the United States Navy folks at this point is an anglophilic organization. They look to Great Britain, they 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 like Great Britain. This is actually odd because most Americans are still what we might call anglophobes. Mm-hmm. Most Americans tend to still regard Great Britain as 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 that European class society that doesn't get it. The ancient enemy. Yeah, well, not the ancient enemy, but the, the the not the way that we want to do business. They're imperialists. They're colonialists, um, and and they they don't understand, you know, the experiment that we're doing. And so so there's there's this sort of nouveau riche attitude by the United States that Great Britain doesn't properly appreciate the United States. And that the Great Britain is arrogant, and 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 it doesn't see the wave of the future, and uh, and 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 it doesn't appreciate the United States. So there's this sort of uh, probably the best way to put it is in Freudian terms. There's there's there, there's this inferiority complex that Americans have, mm-hmm. and that's where most American Anglophobia comes from at the time. This is not the case inside the United States Navy. Mahan is an Anglophile, Dewey's an Anglophile, Henry Clay Taylor's an Anglophile, Bradley Fisk is a... The American Navy officer corps uh, models itself on the British Navy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are building a Navy that mirrors the British Navy. Uh, They look to the British Navy. The fascinating thing is, so do the Japanese. Um, The United States Navy is not like the United States Army. The United States Army looks to France. Mm-hmm. The United States Navy looks to Great Britain's Royal Navy, and so does Japan's Royal Navy. So it's really kind of a fascinating thing there uh, there in terms of strategy, uh, mm-hmm. because the strategy tends to follow British lines. Back so, to the Pacific, though, yeah.
0: So three important things happen over the next kind of 15 years, from between 1905 and 1920. Uh, And feel free to add to this list if if you think of anything to add. Uh, One, China collapses. China goes from being an imperial state to kind of a mess. Uh, Two, World War I, excuse me, yeah, World War One happens. And and then um, within that larger picture, we have an exchange of territories after World War One, where Germany ceases to be a Pacific power, uh, arguably ceases to be a naval power, um, and Japan steps into some of those uh, spaces, both in terms of China and in terms of, of um, uh, Germany. Let's add to that maybe a fourth, which is the opening of the Panama Canal, which is very important strategically for the United States. Um, so, how does the next 15-year period leading into the Washington Naval Treaty? How does that change the strategic calculus in the Pacific for everyone?
1: Let's go backwards. So, first, the Panama Canal. So, so, and, and Bill brought this up with his Atlantic question, which is the United States has interests in the Pacific. All right, it has it has the Philippines, right? Which it's still not sure what it's going to do with. It thinks it's going to eventually. It's a noblesse oblige, the white man's burden. We'll teach the Filipinos how to be good, modern, modern, European-style, you know, Democrats, right? And then they'll be free, but they'll be allied to us, and their markets will be available for our goods. Mm-hmm. And, and their resources will be available for us, and they'll give us basing rights. Kind of and like that's, Cuba. Yeah, kind of like Cuba, right? But not, not like Cuba where you give them their independence immediately, but you do a better job because Cuba, we've already had to re-intervene a couple times you know, in, in Cuba to kind of get them back on the track, right? Roosevelt corollary, Monroe Doctrine. So so the Pan- so because of this, we've got interest in the Pacific, we've got interest in the Atlantic, because because the main threat that the Navy sees is from Germany, all right, not from Japan. Um, and so the Panama Canal is now allows the United States Navy that mobility, that strategic mobility to move the fleet, either to deal with the Pacific Or if there's a crisis in the Pacific, and then it gets solved to move to the Atlantic. So it it allows the United States interior lines strategically to use naval power, Mm -hmm. either in the Caribbean, in the uh, further, further north and east in the Atlantic, or in the Pacific. All right, But it also leverages another requirement on the United States Navy and the United States Army. Okay? There's no Air Force here at this point, so don't, 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 don't get me started, all right? So so And that's to defend the Panama Canal. So right. the Panama Canal becomes a crux, a key piece mm-hmm. in the defense. And what you'll get is you'll get two strategic triangles, one in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific. And at the apex of both of those strategic triangles will be the Panama Canal, right. all right? So whatever happens, the Panama Canal must be defended in order for us to defend everything else, all right? Those what are we defending? Our economic interests, our access to markets because of the open door. all right? Um, so so that's the first one. The Great War. The Great War, the big winner in the Great War in the Pacific is Japan. Essentially, the German concessions fall to Japan. Now Japan attempts to overreach with something called the 21 demands. And that relates to another thing that just happened. All right, okay, and that's China as a failed state. Okay, I'll talk about the 21 demands later. Let me talk about Germany and Japan. Uh, Germany uh, becomes is part of the alliance against. Uh, Germany is part of the uh, Japan is part of the alliance against Germany in the Great War. Britain uses Japan precisely for what she had intended Japan to be used for in the Anglo-Japanese Naval Alliance, which is to essentially protect British sea lines of communication in the Pacific, to her colonies in the Pacific, all right, Um, and by extension to protect her sea lines of communication with India, uh, sort of protecting the Pacific door to India from German surface raiders. And the Japanese Navy does that. They essentially chase uh, Admiral Graf von Spee out of the Pacific and chase him all the way, and then the British take over and pick up the hunt off Coronel, uh, and they lose that battle, by the way. And But von Spee continues to the Falklands where he's destroyed by the Royal Navy. So that is a combined Japanese British thing, all right? And the siege of Tsingtao. And the siege at Tsingtao. And the siege of so Germany has a concession in China on the homeland of Confucius, all right? Now, This is where it gets very messy and very complicated, okay? Let's keep it simple. Basically, Japan inherits all of Germany's interests in the Pacific, Mm -hmm. but at a scaled-back level. They're given certain German territories outright. The northern Marianas, Tinian, Saipan, are actually given to Japan, and they're not mandates. They become part of the imperial Japanese empire, which includes Korea, parts of Manchuria, Uh, for most of the Ryukin Islands and now the Northern Marianas. They're given mandate over the Marshall and the Carolyn Islands. Okay, and that's actually gonna be confirmed by the Treaty of Versailles and then confirmed again at the Washington Naval Conference in 1921-22, okay? So, and, and Japan is the big winner in that, all right? Not the United States. Because uh, the United States isn't in it for colonies. That's what they've been telling everybody. They're just in it for access to open markets. All right. Um, and Japan is sort of an ally to the United States. The United States and Japan cooperate together against the Soviet Union uh, to for the intervention in the Soviet Union to, to reclaim the war munitions that were being provided to Russia. So Japan's a big winner. Now, point number two. So we had the Great War. We had the Panama Canal. We had China as oh, a failed state. Yeah. Yeah. So China is a failed state. China gains her independence. She has the Chinese Revolution in 1911. And This is when the last emperor, uh, the last Qing emperor, who's just a child. His name is Henry Puyi. Is is essentially uh, forced to abdicate his throne, um, and the Chinese, China, China becomes a republic it almost immediately breaks up into a series of warlord states mm-hmm. uh, with, with over many, many, many factions. Uh, initially, the chief warlord is a guy named Yuan Shikai. He's president of China. Sun Yat-sen, sometimes called the George Washington of China, is actually part of his cabinet, but then he's... And China just becomes breaks up into a failed state. At the same time, you have Japan with significant territorial presence inside China. And this is called extraterritoriality. Now, this doesn't mean the land belongs to Japan de jure, but it belongs to Japan de facto. So, Japan has a big base in Qingdao and Shandong. Japan has, owns almost the entirety of the former Tsarist uh, stuff in the Liaoyang Peninsula, as well as concessionary rights along the, the, uh, the, uh, the Kwantung Railroad inside Manchuria. Which had formerly been the terminus of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, mm-hmm. okay, to the ports of Luda and Port Arthur, and so 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 this is also plays a role, and so Japan tries to use World War I to expand its power. At the same time, the United States, after 1905, starts to pay attention to Japan, and the first War Plan Orange is actually the result of uh, segregationist anti. Japanese school legislation in California. Mm-hmm. And so the first war scare occurs around 1907 when there are protests in Japan against American discrimination and tariffs against Japanese goods, products, and people, and immigrants, mm-hmm. both to Hawaii as well as into California. Um, and, and actually, the, the sailing of the Great White Fleet is sort of America showing Japan that it can move an entire fleet globally should Japan try to get out of its box with American interests in the Philippines and in Hawaii. Japan had tried to seize Hawaii in 1895, the so-called Naniwa incident. It was a a young, uh, not Admiral yet, Kato Kanji, who had been a junior officer on the Naniwa Japanese cruiser that had watched helplessly as the Americans had essentially seized Hawaii, before the Germans, the Jap or the Japanese could seize it. Mm-hmm. All right, with the British sort of saying letting the Americans do it and saying, yeah, the Americans can have the Hawaiian Islands. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the but it's only with World War One and the key event in World War One that really causes the United States to look at Japan as the as the new enemy. The United States Navy goes from being f- focused on Germany to goes being focused on Japan. Uh, is is the Zimmerman Telegram, when the Germans uh, sort of bring to surface America's racist fears of the yellow peril by offering an alliance with Japan if Japan will switch sides, attack the United States if she comes into the war, uh, as well as try to get the uh, government of, of uh, uh, Carranza in Mexico to also enter the war as Germany's ally. And this actually... Is when the United States begins to plan in earnest and it pulls out its war plan War Plan Orange mm-hmm. that it first created around 1907-1908 and this plan envisions Guam as a gigantic Singapore in the Pacific. The giant British naval base in the, in the Indo-Pacific is right there at the hinge of the Indo-Pacific at in Singapore um, at Linga Roads and the Americans want to turn Guam into that for them. Shades uh, of the 2020s. Right, right, so, so that's when it begins. So when World War I ends, the, the remaining major problem in the Pacific is this animosity between the Japanese and the Americans. The Japanese create the so-called 8-8 fleet plan, eight dreadnoughts, eight battlecruiser, dreadnought battlecruisers, to deal with the American 1916 Naval Act. The Japanese, the Americans say that Naval Act is meant to enforce the rights of neutrals, Uh, essentially telling Great Britain, you're not gonna tell us what to do, and then telling the Germans, you're not gonna tell us what to do. And we reserve the right to have a big giant Navy of 48 battleships. The Japanese don't see the 1916 Naval Act as aimed at the British and the Germans, they see it as aimed at them. And of course, with the Panama Canal being completed, The Americans can move quickly from the Atlantic to the Pacific Mm -hmm. to keep the Japanese in there. And the Americans, uh, Woodrow Wilson, has essentially initiated a new naval arms race in 1916. And so as the Great War ends, the naval arms race is picking up, something nobody had anticipated. That naval arms race is between Italy, France, the United States, Japan, and Great Britain. Great Britain is building because now she sees problems with the Americans, with the French, and with the Italians. Of those three, the ones that the British are probably the most worried about are the French. Mm-hmm. Okay, But they're also very worried about the Americans. They managed to convince the Americans at the so-called Naval Battle of Paris to cancel their naval building project. And so they take care of the Americans by having the Americans discontinue the 1916 Naval, naval Building Act by, uh, by, uh, by agreeing to join the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. When the United States does not join the League of Nations and when a Republican administration comes into power, the naval arms race begins again in 1920. Mm-hmm. Um, and we almost go to war with Japan in 1920.
0: So, we now have the stage set as we're moving towards World War II. We kind of have four classes of players, if you will. Right. We've got Japan, the U.S., China, and then the European powers and the South American powers on the other side of the Pacific. They're, they're not going to figure as much into World War II. But you, as you've outlined for us, we have this kind of burgeoning rivalry between the U.S. and Japan. Right. Plus the, the Chinese and European colonial powers. Right. So... We we kind of get the sense from, you mentioned this War Plan Orange, how the U.S. is looking at this uh, future conflict. First, is it inevitable that World War II in the Pacific happens, that the United States and Japan go to large-scale naval conflict?
1: No, it's not. It's contingent. Okay. It's contingent on political events in Japan. It's contingent on political events in China. It's contingent on political events in the Soviet Union. And it's also contingent on political events in the former European political powers or, or colonial powers. And contingent, so it's contingent on essentially what we would facially call domestic politics in, in the first and second powers of the world. Remember, the world is multipolar after the Great War, mm-hmm. all right? There are the first ranked powers, those first ranked powers are in order, Great Britain, the United States, which are roughly co-equals. The order after World War One is an American-British world order. Mm-hmm. And they essentially get everybody to accept that world order at the Washington Naval Conference. Not at Versailles. It's at Washington that the new world order is established. Mm-hmm. The Anglo-American world order. Okay, problem is the Americans and the British aren't really full partners yet. They're sort of part, they're sort of Unwilling partners, all right, but they are partners, and, and I think it's overstated. Stephen Roskill's famous book called The Period of Anglo-American Antagonism, which is about the 1920s, it's overstated. There is antagonism, but there's also partnership, and every time we see a crisis, the Americans and the British are actually working together together to solve the crisis, whether the crisis is in the Black Sea, the crisis is, in, is with the Italians in the Adriatic, the crisis is with the Soviet Union and getting back war materials or the crisis. Wherever the crisis or the crisis is in China, they're always working together. Okay, Even though back in Washington and back in London, the diplomats are saying, you know, we're at loggerheads on the Yangtze, and the Yellow Rivers, the Americans and the British are working together. In the Adriatic, the Americans and the British are working together. In the Baltic, the Americans are working together. In the Mediterranean, the Americans, British, and the French are all working together. So,
2: briefly, we keep talking about the rivalry between the Japanese and the Americans growing. Right. And, but what is the rivalry over? Is it just, I have a bigger fleet than you? Are we talking about
1: trade concessions? Or are we talking about no, tension? No, it's what? easy. Okay. The The rivalry is easy. China. So the major problem on the globe is exactly what Alfred Thayer Mahan predicted and Halford Mackinder predicted. It's China, okay? Is the Soviet Union for Mackinder is the Soviet Union going to absorb China, all right? And and achieve geopolitical dominance via the heartland theory. And for Mahan is China going to be overcome either by the Soviet Union or Japan. Uh, uh, McKinder didn't worry about Japan, but Mahan thought maybe Japan was going to be the problem. All right, and he was around enough. I mean, he didn't die till 1914. So M- Mahan was very prescient about geopolitics. You know, he doesn't get any credit for that, but he was very, very well versed in it. Um, and, and that's where my hands brilliance really lay is in geopolitics, not in naval strategy. Okay? Mm-hmm. You heard me say it. I'm on the record. Okay, <laughs> He's, He was a geo grand strategist. That's where his talent truly lay. It did not lie in how to move fleets around, although he knew something about that. But, but, but that wasn't where his real genius lie. It didn't mean he wasn't a competent naval yeah. strategist. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, So so, so China.
1: Uh. China's the answer. China's the answer. So so here you have one-third of humanity, okay, or eventually going to be one-third of humanity, and this is a huge market. It's also a huge population to bring unto the fold of worldwide communism, per Marxism. It's also a huge population to become liberal Democrats that you can sell uh, refrigerators and stoves too that are being created in the industrial powerhouse of the United States mm-hmm. which is already the industrial and financial superpower of the world at this point mm-hmm. the United States in 1920 is is by far the most potentially powerful nation in In world history, and its
0: economy is about to take off.
1: Yeah, and its economy is about to take off. Now it's going to go through growing pains, called the Great Depression. But but that does not mean that the United States is fundamentally you know doomed to fail, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So so China's the problem, and that's why I spent so much time on the British, the French, and the Americans, and eventually the Dutch, all kind of coming together. So. The Washington Conference, the first con- The first thing is, let's stop the ruinous naval arms race, and the Washington Naval Treaty does that. It basically says, we're not gonna build any more battleships. It would be like us going to China today, and Great Britain, and Japan, and all of us getting together, Great Britain, China, Japan, the United States, maybe France, and saying, we're not gonna build any more aircraft carriers for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I proposed that, everybody laughed at me, okay? That's what they did in 1921-22, and they did it. No more building battleships. They saved billions, and that's in their dollars, so trillions in our dollars, uh, with this ending of the naval arms race and the limitation of navies. And many people thought, you know, not only are we going to limit the size of navies, we're going to reduce the size of navies and armies, and air forces. In fact, the Washington Naval Conference. They tried to ban strategic bombing. All mm-hmm. right, um, and and there was this whole lobby at the naval Washington Naval Conference that managed to get everybody to 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 not do that. It, 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 unfortunate, in my own view, that they didn't ban ban it. But but uh, you know they tried. So you mm-hmm. got to give them credit for that. So China's the problem. Now, what's going to happen to China? Um, the Soviet Union sees opportunity in China with communism there's a Chinese Communist Party uh, the Chinese faction is one of the warlord factions, alright, it's not homogenous yet, but it's mostly focused in Shanghai there's a nationalist uh, warlord faction where I, although I lose that term really loosely because they weren't warlords at the time and that's under Chiang Kai-shek and Sun Yat-sen they're sort of the co-leaders of the nationalist movement the KMT, the Guomindang alright, and then there's the Japanese are involved, and all the European powers are involved. So the treaty that supposedly solves the problem of China is called the Nine Power Treaty. So who are the nine powers? The United States, Great Britain, France, um, the United States, Great Britain, France, uh, the Netherlands, Japan, Portugal, uh, China, I'm almost there, I'm forgetting somebody, um, there's two more powers involved. I think Portugal. Soviet Union. Uh, no, the Soviet Union is not part of the. So- Spain. Spain might be part of the Nine Power Treaty. I, I, I It's in my book. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway,
0: if this looks a whole lot like the old kind of um, carving up China into
1: mandates, right? Doing it with business it, instead of it, doing it with do business, it. and the United States does this under the rubric of the Open Door, um, and basically they get the British to agree to force the Japanese to accept the open door in China, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the Nine Power Treaty basically is an agreement among the Japanese and the European colonial powers to maintain extraterritoriality in China on a congenial basis where they all work together, mm-hmm. okay? So that's that's the Nine. The other treaty is the Four Power Treaty. Remember the old Anglo-Japanese Naval Alliance? The Americans tell the British you cannot renew that treaty. If you renew that treaty, we are going to continue to build naval ships. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to we're going to reenact the 19. We'll just take the 1916 Naval Act and we'll build all the ships we said we were going to build, and we'll have a navy about one and a half times as large as the Royal Navy. Okay, so the British agree. Okay, we will not renew that treaty, but we need a replacement. And what you get is the Japanese, American, British. Uh, Japanese, American, British, French, and so these four major naval powers sign that treaty. All right, and that's essentially an agreement to maintain the peace against all comers. All right. Well, who who are the all comers? The Soviet Union. Okay. And so the Four Power Treaty is really aimed at the communist world conspiracy. All right, um, but it's also meant to co-opt the Japanese. All right, so. So all the pieces for World War II strategy are in place in 1922. Mm. They're all in place now, and they're based on what I call the treaty system. All right? And the treaty system is built around co-opting and balancing out the Japanese. But at the same time, politically in Japan, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of support for this system. There's still people who want to intervene in China. the the Japanese The Japanese army has been humiliated in Siberia by the communists. At, at this point in time, the Japanese Navy is the dominant service. The Japanese Navy Minister becomes the Prime Minister, Kato Tomosaburo, and the Japanese and his policy is rapprochement, détente with the United States, and ideally, eventually, what will will replace the Anglo-Japanese treaty with the American Japanese treaty mm-hmm. so, so that's what he wants, alright but inside Japan there are still significant political factions that aren't happy with what he's doing.
2: So, so let's take us kind of in a big leap here you said uh, all, the posi- all kind of the parts are in play in 1922 so how do we go from everyone's willing to work together in China, except for maybe the Chinese but side story And we get to the uh, Japanese invasion of uh, China. That seems to be a fairly significant. Okay, so
1: the second answer to your question is Japan. Okay, so it it has to do with Japanese internal imperial politics. Um, The first part of the answer is still China. China is still a failed state, Mm -hmm. so it's one of these you know problems that begins before World War One, and it's what we call a trans-war problem and it hasn't been solved after World War One. Uh, we're thinking that what will happen is that the nationalists will unify China, but initially, the, we're not even sure the nationalists, I, a lot of people, including the United States, regard the nationalists as a fifth column by the Soviet Union to take over China, all right? Yeah, there is a Chinese Communist Party, it's under Kuai Pei, who eventually dies and the party becomes under the power of essentially the Comintern and Otto Brown um, but but uh, uh, who's not even Chinese by the way all right so um, but 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 check Chek goes to school in the Soviet Union he attends officer Academy and so he's trained at the frunze Academy and then he creates his own frunze Academy at Wampoa and so there's a lot of distrust of Chang Chang is Chang really a Democrat or is he just a communist mm-hmm. you know is he a, is he a wolf in sheep's clothing is he a communist in Democrats' clothing. And so there's a lot of mistrust to him. And that's part of the problem. But the other problem is the liberal elements of what is called Taisho democracy. That's the name of the emperor at the time. He's actually developmentally challenged. He's got like an IQ of like 70. All right. Um, but under him, you see this flowering of democracy in Japan, where Japan seems to be turning into Great Britain, as a constitutional monarchy, instead of Germany mm-hmm. as an autocratic something, all right, you know, with a Reichstag, right? Because Japan has a diet. What happens is the Democrats are defeated. Uh, Kato Tomosaburo has to deal with the effects of the Tokyo earthquake. He's severely ill, and then he dies in 1923. When he dies the Liberal Democrats, the LDP, the Liberal Democratic, the Minsaito Party, begins to lose power to a nationalist faction who ally themselves with the Army. And the Army thinks we've been we've been treated poorly, you know. Uh, the American people don't appreciate it. We just spent all this time in in uh, in these godforsaken places, and they don't they don't like us. So we're going to uh, we're going to ally ourselves with Republican right wing extremists. Well, that's what's happening in Japan after Kato Tomasoburo dies. Nationalist elements in the political framework of Japan align themselves with extremists in the army and extremists in the navy and Japan begins its slow trajectory towards militarism. The two nations that recognize this first are Great Britain, and Winston Churchill is still a part of the Great British Government, and the United States. Um, the problem is it's the Admiralty in Britain that says, we now have a one power standard for the Army, the Navy, and the new Royal Air Force, and that one power that we build to is Japan, okay? This is where Roscoe gets it wrong. The one power, I've seen it in the cabinet papers of the British, the one power that Britain is most worried about in the 1920s is not the United States. It's Japan, okay? Uh, they also worry about the Soviet Union, okay? Mm-hmm. But they're more concerned about Japan because Japan threatens their colonies more than the Soviet Union does. The Soviet Union is still an unknown quantity as, as, as a threat. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, you sort of beat them down with the intervention, but the intervention didn't go well. Um, And Britain sort of, and Great Britain is a debtor nation, by the way. She's a debtor nation. She's in hock to Wall Street. Fleet Street has moved to Wall Street. And so that's another reason the British are partners with the Americans, is because we hold their note. Okay. Americans don't understand that. However, uh, Dawes in the United States and John Maynard Keynes in Great Britain do understand that. And so the United States and Great Britain are driven together by economic factors, political economy, but also by the threat of increasing Japanese nationalism. More and more, the Japanese army becomes uncontrollable. And they more and more drive Japanese foreign policy. For the Japanese army, the enemy is the Soviet Union. They're worried the Russians are going to try to come back and retake Manchuria and eventually all of China under the communist rubric. The Japanese actually proposed to the United States, even after Kato dies, let's form an anti-communist alliance against the Soviet Union. And the United States says, no thanks. You know, we already have a a special trade agreement with you. The United States essentially has a NAFTA with Japan at the time. So economically, we have a very liberal good relationship with the Japanese in terms of goods and services. And the Japanese do allow our goods to go into China. A lot of good that does. It's what, we're, what we're really getting into China is missionaries. It's not really American goods to sell to a broken, failed state. It's like, hey, we've got the open door into the Central African Republic. Yeah, a lot of good that does anybody. You mm-hmm. know, they're, The Central African Republicans aren't buying stoves in China. So, so the American policy is focused on Japan, and that's War Plan Orange. The American Army and the American Navy both see Japan as the enemy. And they see the problem as how do we defend the Philippines against an expansionist Japanese empire. The British see how do we defend our sea lines of communication and our colonial interests in Asia, particularly in China, against the Japanese empire. The Dutch see it the same way. The French see it the same way. So all the nations that are developing strategies on the eve of World War II have essentially been thinking about the problem of Japan – for 20 years
0: so let's put the let's put the other hat on um, it's i think it's fair to say that the powers you just mentioned the colonial powers the u.s. are largely kind of status quo powers at least right in terms they of are the territory. status quo and japan is the revisionist power true so what are the japanese you know now that they've moved into this space of militarism what is their strategic planning how are they planning to overcome what is potentially a massive alliance against them
1: they don't have what we would think of as a coherent strategic planning process. There are two schools of strategic... Actually, there's more than that. The Navy and the Army have their own strategic planning processes. The Navy sees the United States as the enemy and budgets to create the fleet according to the size of the United States fleet, as constrained by the Washington Naval Treaty and then the London Naval Treaty. And then the Army sees the Soviet Union um, as its enemy, but the problem is they need resources. And so they see China as the vehicle to solve the problem of the Soviet Union. All right? So the army's policy is to an informal expansionist empire under under what's regarded as the status quo, which is extraterritoriality in China, But that's not, but it's a salami slicing strategy. Kind of like the Chinese strategy in Asia today. We're gonna take what we get slowly. This is not the policy of the emperor, Taisho and then Hirohito, nor is it the policy of the government, of the prime ministers. It's the policy of the army. Inside the army, they disagree about how to do that. So there's two factions inside the army that plan. One is the control faction, which is scientific, mechanized warfare, their leaders are German-educated at the Kriegs Academy. Most famously, uh, 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 most famously uh, Ishiwara Kanji, but also Tojo Hideki, okay, and some other generals whose names you probably never recognize. Uh, everybody recognizes Tojo; nobody recognizes Ishiwara. And uh, and then there's the control. Then there's the Imperial Way faction, the Kodoha. And they're the faction of the, we need a large conscript army. We don't need a modern army. We just need a large army, kind of like what the French had.
0: The Levee en masse. The
1: Levee en masse. And, and they're, the, they're the ones who say, what we need to fight the Soviet Union is land. So they're the Lebensraum guys. The, Kodoha, the, the toseha, the the control faction guys, uh, their strategy is... We need resources, we need autarky, we need Japan to be able... World War I has taught us that you need to control your own resources. And for them, the way to get the resources is create a new industrial base for Japan that's secure from the United States, but also secure from the Soviet Union, uh, and secure from problems in China, and that industrial base will be in Manchuria. So their goal is to seize the iron and the coal of Manchuria. Okay, so uh, so that's their strategy: seize Manchuria so you can fight a war with the Soviet Union, and once and for all eliminate the problem of the Soviet Union. So as we're kind
2: of building up to World War II, China is China and Manchuria in specific are kind of is considered key terrain. What other parts of the Pacific are the are kind of all the powers looking at? Like, if I've got to fight a war, I need this.
1: Okay, so so the problem is you've still got the European concessions inside China, all right? Um, the British have no intention of leaving Hong Kong. The British have no intention of leaving their concession in Shanghai, as do none of the other concessionary powers in Shanghai, including the United States, Japan, France, the Dutch, Portuguese, and even the Germans have a con- still have a concession in Shanghai, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And Versailles did not take that away from them. So... So, you have, you know, you. So, the key terrain is Shanghai, because Shanghai is becoming the locust for the nationalist movement. And eventually, up the river from Shanghai, Nanjing, which means southern capital in China, becomes the political capital of nationalist China. So, the other key terrain is the Shanghai Nanjing corridor along the Yellow River. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is it's not just a Chinese problem, it's a European problem, it's a Japanese problem. The Japanese also have a concession in China. So the two key terrains inside China for the building blocks of what become crises in the 20s and the 30s, and then eventually war in 1930, open war in 1937, uh, although some people put it in 1932, is Manchuria and Shanghai.
0: What about outside of China? What are what are particularly the Japanese looking to gain from the colonial powers and from the
1: United So States? the Japanese navy sees this entirely differently. One, they're not obsessed with the Soviet Union. They're obsessed with the Americans. And inside the Japanese navy there are two there are two factions. These factions are both army factions want to expand in China. At the expense of the Chinese to build up Japanese power to finally rid Asia of European and American colonialists. Mm -hmm. So I probably should have stated that earlier. That's their goal. Just rid Asia of European colonialists, whether they're Democrats, imperialists like the British and the French, or communists like the Russians. All right? Okay. Mm -hmm. In the Navy, that's not the case. The Navy is divided into two factions, and they're very localized organizationally, very easily localized. One faction is in the Imperial Naval General Staff, and these are the imperialists. They want to expand, but they don't want to expand into Asia, into China. They want to expand into Southeast Asia, and they want to... So their goal is, yeah, let's get rid of the European colonialists, but let's get rid of them in Southeast Asia in what's called the Southern Resource Area, which encompasses all of the British, French, Dutch, and Portuguese, and American colonies Mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia. So So, everywhere from India to uh, the Philippines, the Japanese want a new world order down there in the southern so that's the fleet faction
2: substitute european colonies for basically japanese
1: colonies no the japanese are going to liberate all these peoples (laughs) and they're going to align this the japanese want an informal empire the japanese want the monroe doctrine in asia Uh with the with the tojo corollary okay Mm -hmm. that's what they want Mm -hmm. all right so this is the fleet factions vision no manchuria is not the way the southern resource area is the way they lose the debate to the Army, up until up until just prior to World War Two. Okay, the other faction in the Navy are the Treaty faction, the, the heirs of Kato Tomasoboro, They tend to be very liberal. Uh, you'll have defections between the two factions. Yamamoto Isoruko, for example, is a member of the fleet faction. But after the London Naval Conference, he realizes that the Japanese people just want peace and food and jobs. And so he joins the treaty faction. The Treaty faction vision is uh, status quo, but we get to keep all of our rights mm-hmm. in China and the mandates. All right. And they, they want rapprochement with the British and reproachment with the Americans, all right? Mm-hmm. And they want to continue the treaty system. Mm-hmm. They think the treaty system, which is a status quo system, is a good system. They support that system, mm-hmm. okay? Um, of the four factions we've talked about, they are the weakest politically. Uh, they, the last time they will get one of their guys as a prime minister will be uh, during the, the period of the London Naval Conference but he will be assassinated after the London Naval Conference, and after that they'll steadily lose political power. Hard okay. to be a radical moderate, right? Right. They will still maintain control of the navy of the Navy Ministry until the young officers' revolt in 1936, and then after that they'll lose control of the Navy Ministry. Um, uh, even though they'll maintain some people inside the Ministry, like Yamamoto, will still mm-hmm. remain in the Ministry in a way. Will remain in the Ministry, and even I think Makoto will remain in the Ministry, but. Uh, but uh, so that's it. So you have all these competing factions. What it results in is this really oddball, episodic Japanese expansionism in China. Mm-hmm. All right. The first thing they do is they come to an agreement with the Japanese warlord, Chang So Lin, General So's chicken. That's Marshal Chang So Lin, illiterate opium eater. All right. Uh, he's got a son called the Young Marshal. The Jap- he decides that he wants the Japanese to make some concessions to him to maintain his hold on power in Manchuria, and so the Japanese Kwantung Army decides to get rid of him. This is a this is a this is this is called Gekko Kujo Japanese Field Initiative. Nobody in the Kwantung Army, in the Korean Army, or in the Japanese Army Imperial General Staff, to say nothing of the Japanese government or the emperor know about this. None of them approve it. This is an operations officer on a small army staff based inside China that decides to assassinate, essentially, a head of state. And so they assassinate Marshal Chang-seo Lin, okay? When he gets assassinated, it throws China into a turmoil, all right? And there's there's a power vacuum in northern China and then Japan says the time is ripe to fill the power vacuum in northern China as the young marshal tries to consolidate his hold on power and his varying rela- alliances with all of these other players. And it's mind-boggling. If you want to get a feel for how mind-boggling it is, read Barbara Tuckman's Stillwell and the American Experience in China. It's a bad history of the American experience in China, but it's a good history of the warlords in China. Mm-hmm. and uh, um, And the Japanese do a staff ride in their civilian clothes on trains through Manchuria in 1929 with Colonel Ishiwara Kanji, one of the co-heads of the control faction, a lieutenant colonel, and he is the one who decides to invade Manchuria with the Kwantung Army, which is this Japanese garrison protecting the Japanese railroad that goes from uh, Luda all the way up through Mukden and Harbin, all the way up to the Soviet Union but essentially it's a railroad from which uh, raw materials are extracted from manchuria sent down to ships and then they go to japan where they're raw materials for the japanese industrial base mm-hmm. all right um they decide they decide they'll use a, a a terrorist attack it's a it's a false flag and so he sets off a bomb near the railway station and near the barracks in Mukden, near the japanese barracks he says the warlord's attacking him and then they basically proceed to occupy Manchuria. Uh, they, and it flashes into newsreels, and this is when, when, the, when the, the, the overt period of Japanese expansion in China officially begins, is in 1931 with the conquest of Manchuria by the Kwantung Army.
0: All right, so Dr. Keenan, it's been a fascinating discussion about the kind of strategic roots of the war in the Pacific and World War II. Uh, thank you for doing this.
1: I, I appreciate it. So your so your listeners will know, this is the trajectory that takes us to World War II in the Asia-Pacific in 1937. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I would answer your question, is war uh, inevitable? No, but it's overdetermined.
0: determined yeah, Fair point. It's a good way of putting it. Thank you. Thank you. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.